0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in northwest Ohio and southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Last September, my family and I were not here. We were in the state of Washington on vacation and one of the places that we really wanted to get to before we came back across the country was the Ho Rainforest. And so near the end of our trip, uh, we decided to take the about maybe hour, hour and a half drive from where we were staying up near Port Angeles uh, down west on 101 and then down uh, toward Oregon. And and we it's a long way to go to get to this park. There's one entrance to the park. And as we were driving, um, one of the things that we we're surprised by were all the small dilapidated towns that looked like they'd been dried up from regulations and limitations forced upon the tree harvesting industry on the peninsula. But one of the towns that we drove through looked particularly sad and depressed. And what made this particular town look so pathetic was the sun-bleached remnants of what looked like a tourist attraction turned ghost town. We were driving through, at that point, Forks, Washington. How many of you have heard of Forks, Washington? few hands Forks Washington is only known and probably only ever will be known for being the geographic setting of the immensely popular novel and film series of Twilight which I absolutely know nothing about (laughs) other than this I know that it is just one in the trickle one little trickle rather in the ever-flowing stream of movies that I would categorize and you would probably categorize it as as dark fantasy. When you go to the library to rent a movie, how many people do that anymore? Good, glad we're not the only ones. When you go to the library or when you scroll on Netflix, you are inundated with movies about vampires, about zombies. When you go to Barnes & Noble, you meet an end cap display that's pride and prejudice and zombies. I mean... Um, you scroll through tons of movies about the undead and exorcisms, mass murders, and all sorts of subjects that find their source and their root in a world of darkness and evil. And it, of course, I've mentioned movies because they're probably the most popular, but it goes way beyond movies. Our culture is fascinated with all sorts of what I call dark content, whether it's romance novels whether it's comic books, whether it's video games, whether it's pornography, we have a fascination. And though obviously there are many problems with this sort of entertainment, I think one of the biggest that is not obvious at first is this, that they are all feeding us and teaching us about the nature of spiritual darkness. Christians should be informed by Scripture, not by the things of the world. God is true. The Psalms say that his words are pure words. On the other hand, Scripture also says that Satan is the prince of darkness, that he was a liar, that the truth cannot be found in him. He was a liar from the beginning. I remember I was reading this morning before the service, before church, and I was reading the Psalms as I would typically do on a Sunday, and I decided to just read Psalm 1 or listen to it a few times, um, and it was striking. Blessed is the man who does not Walk in the council that we could sit and see the scoffer stand in the way of the sinner. Um, and normally, when we hear that, we think of literally doing those things. It goes on to say, But he whose delight is in the law of the Lord uh, will be blessed by God. He who meditates on the law of the Lord will find God's favor and blessing. It's saying the same thing. It's saying, If you walk in the way searching for my truth in Hollywood, you are not going to be blessed by God. Don't put yourself under that influence. The righteous man, the Christian man, the Christian woman looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the holy words of God. Uh, So, we as Christians should never channel comic books, Hellboy, it, uh, when we're thinking about the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. God's word speaks to the nature of Satan demons and spiritual darkness and as Christians our thoughts must be informed and regulated and governed by scripture alone. And listen here, just at the outset I want to say that many of you are probably thinking I don't consume that sort of entertainment. Well I would say you're right not to and I don't either. But we would be deceived if we were to think that we are not or our children are not not influenced by that sort of thing. It's the same as if I say think about Jesus Christ Now, whether or not you've watched the Jesus movie or Passion of the Christ, there is probably an image, probably, of a white man with long hair and a beard that comes to your mind, if you were to think of that, even though there's no rationale for that. It doesn't speak to Christ's physical representation in Scripture other than he was despised and rejected of men, acquainted with suffering. So there's these things culturally that are constantly being displayed to us, and whether or not we purposely buy a ticket to go see it or not, we can't make the mistake of thinking we're totally immune from that sort of influence. And we don't help ourselves when we do. Two weeks ago, we heard about Jesus triumphing over the power of nature, calming the wind and the waves with his apostles in the boat. This week, we read about Jesus triumphing over demons. Our passage is Matthew chapter 8. If you'd turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. And I ask that you stand with me as we read the word of God you don't have your Bibles this morning, it will be on the screens. You can follow along there. This is the word of the Lord. When he, Jesus, came to the other side into the country of the Gadareans, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way, and they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now there was a herd of swine, many swine, feeding at a distance from them. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out, and they went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And Behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, Father, guide our minds and hearts as we study your word, as we look into it. The perfect law, the perfect light, shine light on our dark hearts, we pray, Father. And may your name be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the preface of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he writes that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils, with regard to devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence entirely. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy amount of interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail To a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We've just read an account of Jesus meeting two men and casting demons out of them. And the question that I want us to all consider this morning is this Are you convinced of the spiritual reality of darkness in this world? Do you believe that Satan and his demons are working in a very real and present sense? On this earth? Do you believe that there are people today who are oppressed by demons? Or, to press a little further, have you ever met someone that you believed was under the influence of demonic power or influence? Are you aware of whether or not Satan has ever tried to sift you like wheat, as Jesus said to the Apostle Peter? And before we give an unequivocal yes, we should ponder what an honest answer would be. Of course, we believe that Satan is real. The Word of God says it. And so in a very basic way, we can all nod along. But what I'm asking is, are you convinced of the reality of the work of demons in and around your life? Is it something that you ever think about? Is it something that you ever, in a sense, see? In the Western world, Satan has been persistent and deliberate in seeking to afflict and deceive, but not by openly terrorizing us. He's rather convinced us that he doesn't exist at all. Since the Enlightenment leading to Darwin and his religion of evolution, uh, these things have worked together to reinforce again and again the idea that there is nothing spiritual at all. No Satan, no God. There are no higher powers that govern this world, this universe. There is nothing supernatural. The only things we need to give credence to are those things that can be observed and documented And affirmed by scientific theory that is the world in which we live here's the thing the devil does not care about what tactic he has to use if the end is our soul's destruction he doesn't care to make himself small in our minds so small in fact that we never even consider him if he can secure our presence with him for eternity We need to remember that. If we think back to Lewis's quote, in light of America's seeming fascination with dark entertainment or content, whatever form it may be, I think that we actually have succumbed to both errors simultaneously as I thought about what, what Lewis wrote in the preface there. We have an unhealthy interest on the one hand for portraying spiritual darkness and simultaneously Maybe as a result of always seeing it being produced by the same people that make all sorts of other imaginary things. We don't believe in it at all. It's just a movie. It's actually labeled many times under the word fantasy. And I I got to thinking, you know, what actually is, I know what fantasy is, I know what fantasy video games are, but what does fantasy actually mean? And I looked it up and um, fantasy is the faculty or the activity of imagining things, especially all those things that are actually impossible. So this is how we label this sort of content which we consume or maybe which our children consume or the content that is swirling around us. If we were to think correctly about the forces of darkness in this world, we must start by admitting that most of the time we consider these things it is because we are reading about it on the pages of Scripture like we did this morning where there's an account of a demoniac and he's cast out by Jesus or he's cast out by the disciples and then everything's better and then we move on to work. Or it's because we're taking it in via media or Hollywood trailers. Uh, it's not because these things are before our eyes. It's not because they're an ever-present reality in which we live in the midst of. Obviously, reading passages such as our text this morning are helpful in teaching us about the nature of the enemy. Um, one of the temptations we face when we look at scripture and we read these type of stories is to think that somehow they are detached from our lives. And we do this, I'm saying that we do this with stories about Satan's work, but we do it in other ways too. We read about David and Goliath and we think, what great faith, what great power. We read about Moses throwing down before Pharaoh, right? <laughs> Literally throwing down his and Aaron's staff and then becoming snakes, and swallowing that of, 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 of the leaders of Egypt. And we think, wow, what power, what authority. And maybe we are encouraged by it. Maybe we're inspired by it. But then we think, man, what power. And we don't realize that the same power that they had, the same power they operated under, is available to us. And not only is it available to us, but God expects us, we who were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, to call on him by faith and to do things that are great, not for ourselves, but to magnify Him. So we do this, we do this when we read scripture. And we can't do it. Are you convinced of the reality of spiritual darkness? I actually suppose that this question, as you're pondering it, is not comprehensive enough. Because we can actually be convinced of something without it mattering to us. We can all be convinced that Mars has the largest volcano in our solar system, And yet, it doesn't matter. On February 1st, I'm sure we were all convinced that there was something in China going around. I think that none of us were probably denying it when we heard some faint news clipping about what was happening in China. And yet, it didn't really matter to us until March, April, when it actually, that reality was made known here. And now, look at this morning. We have... Orders from our governor, and we're wearing masks to worship. We believed in it, but it just didn't matter. What is our attitude toward spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places? That, that quote, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, is from Ephesians six twelve. Many of us have probably heard about it before. What is our attitude toward it? If we are hard-pressed to identify any practical influence of Satan within or around our lives, our family, I want to warn us that we are not taking Scripture seriously on this point. We just aren't. Again and again, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the reality of Satan, the reality of his demons, the reality of their work and their opposition to God is written over the pages of Scripture. Genesis, the Satan... uh, The Satan... I read a book where every time it referred to Satan, it insisted on saying the Satan, and apparently it stuck. Satan apparently uh, manifested himself to Adam and Eve in the garden at the very, very beginning of the creation story. Then we go to Job, very early on in Scripture. He's afflicted by Satan. Satan takes everything from Job in the hopes that he will curse God and die a miserable death in the desert. We see that the Egyptians we already mentioned in Egypt are able to copy the miraculous works of God, and we're told that it's by their dark arts. That is the word that's used. In Deuteronomy, God warns his people Israel against spiritism and dark arts when they are going into the promised land. I want to read you just a few verses. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination... One who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts out a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Do you understand that God is not saying this? He's not giving this warning because all that stuff is imaginary. Do you understand? God is saying that when you go into this land, there are going to be people that do this kind of thing. There are going to be witches of Endor who pull up the prophet for you, and yet you are not to imitate it. He doesn't say that's all just a lie, it's all fabricated by Satan to give little children nightmares. Now, it doesn't mean we live in fear of it. We will get to that. But God does not say that all of that stuff is just made up. And we are doing ourselves, our family, our church, our world a disservice if that's really our view. That those things are only fictional characters and they're bad only because they represent something bad, but there's, there's nothing to them. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. We keep going. In the New Testament, Jesus heals those all the time that are oppressed by demons and the sick. It's always most often labeled those that are demon-possessed and the sick. Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast out unclean spirits. We're going to see that when we get to Matthew chapter 10. We know that Jesus cared and showed love for the beloved Mary Magdalene by casting seven demons out of her. 1 Timothy warns that Satan is like a what? Roaring lion Actually seeking to devour. Let's not, let's not overly spiritualize those things. He is on earth, and he seeks to devour your soul. Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.1, warns that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to watching too much TV. Well, probably yes, but no. It says, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of Demons. We're commanded to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Bible teaches that Satan and his forces are a very real, very present, and very active. Their mission is simple. They want to lash out at God in vehement hatred, anger, jealousy toward him. In any possible way, they are seeking to deter sinners from becoming his sons. Remember that just a few chapters back, Satan met Jesus in the wilderness and was unsuccessful in his attempt to cause Jesus to sin. Now Satan works to foster and maintain rebellion against God. And I've just shared a few, just a few, of the references to him and his work throughout the Old and New Testaments. If these things seem disconnected from the reality of your life, we, you, I, need to wake up to the realities of that are around us as they're presented in scripture. Do we take scripture seriously or not? Throughout church history, those that have led the charge, the fight of faith in the church, have never doubted the presence or influence of Satan in their lives and in their churches. I just, most famous, I did cherry pick here. Most famous is Martin Luther because he writes so, so, so much about it. He just saw Satan and his power at work behind everything one quote of hundreds that were very easily accessible. When I awoke last night, the devil came and wanted me to debate with him. He rebuked and reproached me, arguing that I was a sinner. To this I replied, Tell me something new, devil. I know that perfectly well. I've committed many a solid and real sin. Talk about a confession. The devil, for Luther, for Calvin, for the early church fathers for Christians throughout all of history, has never been hypothetical. He's never been a hypothetical foe. He's always been a household name. Like our brothers and sisters in faith throughout history, we must be convinced of the true reality of Satan and his demons if we are not to be caught slack in fighting them. That is why I'm trying to argue and cause us to recognize that we need to take this seriously. Because if we don't take it seriously, we aren't going to fight it seriously. And Scripture says that we are to put on the armor of God So that we're able to fight. What good is a soldier in Christ's army that doesn't fight? No good. And so we must take these things seriously. Having argued for us to open our eyes wider to the reality of spiritual forces, I want to spend the remainder of our time actually considering the nature of spiritual forces as found in our text. Then I'll make some closing applications. So I want us to look back at, if you have your Bible, take a look at it. Verse 28. When he, Jesus, came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. First and foremost, looking at the text, what do we see? We notice that these demons are powerful. When I was growing up, I was involved in everything our church did. I was involved with Sunday School Children's Church, Iwana, all that. And one of the songs that we learned and we would sing often on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings is a song that goes, I've got the joy, 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 down in my heart, way up down in my heart. You, how many of you have heard that song? The joy, 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 joy. Right. Long name, amazing results, right? Now, we'd always sing it, but there was always one part of that song I remember 25 years later. To this day, my parents rejected and they wouldn't allow me to sing it. They viewed it, it displeased them if they knew I was singing this verse. And I've never forgotten it and it's the verse at the end that goes, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Sit on attack, sit on attack. If the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Sit on attack to stay. They They didn't like me singing that. And now I understand why. Why? Because it makes the devil... Look weak and puny. It makes him out to be some variation of the wily coyote rather than a real foe, a real foe that hunts for us and seeks to devour us. The demons which afflict the men in our passage cause them to be so extremely violent that no one can pass by. No one is able to deal with these men. We're told in parallel passages in the other gospels that often they had been bound often they had been shackled with chains, and the chains had been torn apart by them, and the shackles had been broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue them. It reminds you of the Old Testament um, judge of Samson, except Samson had the power of God breaking his chains, right? In this passage, we have these demon-possessed men, and it's Some sort of demonic power that is giving them supernatural strength to break chains. The powers of darkness are not a joke. Satan is real. His demons are real. His power is real. And we must live our lives with that fact in view, acknowledged. Um, On the 4th of July, uh, we were kindly invited over by uh, Jordan and Mackenzie to their home um, to have some hot dogs and hang out. And we were having lots of fun. And some of us guys were launching balloons from one of those medical um, water balloon launcher slingshots. You know, you know the ones, the, the ones you can stretch ten feet back and, and launch. And so we were launching them, and things started to, you know, descend downward. And then we started launching them at other men's backs, <laughs> and uh, we were having a lot of fun until my son Nate took one right to his eye. He was it would have missed his head, except he decided to try and get out of the way, and he. It ran and ducked right into uh, the water balloon. And uh, so it swelled up um, fairly quickly, and we wanted to make sure it wasn't a hematoma or something. And so we went to the ER, and we were in triage, uh, triage area. The, 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 <laughs> the ER on the 4th of July at Toledo Hospital was packed. Not a single room open, and I'm proud to say that it was all little boys. All little boys. There wasn't a single girl in that entire ER. Um, which was pretty humorous. And we later found out that, that uh, Jack, was it Jack? Noah? Noah. Noah was in the room across the hall with a, with a break in there, a sprain on his ankle from a trampoline incident the same night. So, You feeling better? You feeling better, Noah? It's all good? Good. Love you. Um, while we were there a boy who was about 10 years old got wheeled in on a stretcher from an ambulance and he seemed to be fairly, um, I don't know, compliant with the EMS crew. And They put him right in the room next to us and, and uh, he was quiet and it was, they were having a hard time getting any information out of him and his dad arrived and they, they uh, apparently from what I could hear because it was happening right outside, this has happened before. He's come in for something I couldn't tell what it was. But what I could tell is when it came time for the, the, the uh, CAT scan or CT scan, uh, we took Nate out. And as we were taking him out, things started to escalate in the room next door. And uh, this boy, he was 10 years old, sweet-looking little boy. I don't know what happened. Something happened that was uh, cataclysmic during the CT scan. And when we came out, there was all sorts of very... Uh, Very troubling screaming and guys having to try and hold him down. It was, it made an impression. I'm not trying to make this this kid look bad but it was really troubling to Aaliyah and I and we went back to our room and we sat in there and we just sort of listened and thankfully Nate was asleep uh, so he didn't hear any of it. And honestly, Aaliyah and I ended up praying and just said, this kid is troubled. This kid is struggling with something. There were six full-grown officers trying to hold this kid down and he was giving them a run for their money and it was really it was not funny and it was not it was very sad and we ended up praying in the hospital that whatever was tormenting this this young boy um, would would leave him and the the reason I say that is not to uh, make sport or fun or try and use a good illustration the reason I share that is because the reality of Satan's power is real it is real. And as Christians, we need to, to live in that reality and know that he has power and he is trying to attack uh, those that he can get into his grip. Um, if we look at the book of Jude, the church is warned regarding those who creep into the church under the guise of religious devotion but have no faith and no love for Jesus. And it says this, These men... Also, by dreaming defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. But Archangel Michael, when disputing with the devil and arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce any railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These men revile things which they do not understand. So, when we don't understand something, we can have a tendency to just not pay any attention. We can't afford to do that. We have to look to the scripture and have it teach us about the nature of such things and live with that reality in view. Again, the archangel does not tell the devil to sit on attack. He knows the power of Satan, and therefore he invokes the power of God against him. Satan has power, his demons have power. Do not be so foolish as to think otherwise. Do not share in the attitude of reviling angelic majesties without knowledge. So, the reality of Satan's power, and how does this hit us? The reality of Satan's power should cause us to have humility. Do not be arrogant about it. Do not take it lightly. A soldier who has no fear in battle is a fool. A soldier who fights thinking that there's no risk at all is a danger to himself and to those who fight around him. And I'm not speaking to to God's sovereignty and care over us. I'm saying we, we must be humble and not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We must let this knowledge not cause us to fear, but it must cause us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So first, we see they're powerful. Second, we see that the demons have a knowledge of God. Look back at your Bibles. We read verse 28, now we're in 29. The demons cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? What business do we have with each other, you son of God? Curiously, the Jews... We'll end up crucifying Jesus Christ for making the claim to be the Son of God. The demons openly admit this to be true. Uh, Augustine says about the nature of demons this, and I think it's helpful for us to consider. In light of sacred scripture, even the etymology of this word, etymology is the, the meaning of a word if you look back throughout time. The etymology of this word demon teaches us an important fact worth knowing. The demons, the word in Greek, are so-called because of their knowledge. So mean it means knowing. So the word that comes to us is demon has its root in the word knowing. Now the apostle, speaking under the inspiration of Holy Spirit, says this, knowledge puffeth up, but charity or love edifies. He can only mean that knowledge does only good in the company of charity or love. Otherwise, it merely puffs a man into pride, swelling him like a balloon with valueless volumes of air. But to this pride of the demons is opposed the power of humility of God, which appeared in Christ. So the power of humility, the power of God and humility that we see in Christ is opposed to the pride of the demons. And so we see that demons have a knowledge of God, but a knowledge that causes pride and self-exaltation rather than humility and dependency. We are taught by this passage that it is not knowledge, but love, that distinguishes saints from devils. It is not our knowledge about God, but it is our love for God that separates us from demons and and devils. This should cause us to be aware of knowledge without love. Be aware of having knowledge without love. To have knowledge without love is to follow after the example of the devil. So first, they're strong. Second, they they know about God. They openly declare him to be true, uh, the Son of God. And third, we see that Satan and his demons are bound by the authority of the Word of God. Again, you can follow along in your passage. Now, the end of 29 says, Have you come here to torment us before the time, the demons ask. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out, and they went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Though we started by recognizing the real power of Satan, make no mistake that God's power is infinitely greater, infinitely stronger. Too often, uh, people have this manichaeistic or dualistic view of God and Satan, as if they're really two gods, a good God and a bad God, and there's constant struggle, this constant fight for dominion over the human soul. This is basically the grown-up equivalent of that cartoon which shows Satan and God or Satan and an angel whispering sweet murmurings into the ear of the subject seeking to cause them to go this way or that. As we see in the text, this is not the case. Calvin says, As for the discord and strife that we say exists between Satan and God, we ought to accept as a fixed certainty the fact that Satan can do nothing unless God wills it and assents, which is to agree to something after thoughtful consideration. Satan can do nothing unless God wills it and a sense to it. The demons are subservient to the command of God. This should cause us to take up the fight with courage, not with pride, not with an air of whatever, this is nothing, not, not an air of, um, eh, the word isn't coming to me. We should fight with courage, recognizing that we are supported and undergirded with the power of God. That as we fight against the powers of this world, powers of darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, we do not do so by our own power but the power of God, the power to which the demons bow. And finally, uh, from our passage, one more observation. Uh, we see that it is not only the demons that live, uh, we, pardon me, we see that not only do the demons live in subjection to the sovereign will of God, not only are they cast out of the men whom they once resided in, but by their own testimony, they know that their doom is sure. It's an interesting thing to say to Jesus. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Well, what do they mean by the time? They, they obviously have it here on their minds that great and final day of judgment when they know that they will be cast to hell Forever. They know that that is a present reality and the train is left the station has left the station and is on its way to that final destination. And they they know it's coming for them. And so God and so rather they say to the Lord, have you come to do this to us now? Of course. You know, maybe they were actually surprised. If you think about it demons their knowledge puffs them up we know from isaiah and other places that satan uh, was actually uh, one of the angels of light right and that he fell and that fall from heaven from god uh, was rooted in pride and wanting to be god wanting to have the glory of god so as i'm thinking about it here right now i'm thinking that perhaps they say have you come to do this to us before the time because they're so surprised that Jesus would what? Humble himself to become a man. What? You? Here? Hum- that, that's, that in itself, condescending to human flesh and walking on the earth and healing demoniacs is an act of humility in Christ. And so, maybe they're, they respond this way because they're just so taken back because it's so not their nature. They can't even imagine the Son of God who's going to command them to hell, the deepest pits of hell for eternity, walking on the earth and having compassion on a pathetic couple of people that live out in the tombs and cut themselves and scream. Maybe that's why they say that. Of course, the, the reassurance that there is a final, final day of vindication, of judgment, should be of great hope and courage to us as Christians. Though the battle still rages... As the song goes, victory is sure. Satan's fate has been sealed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Having made these observations on the nature of demons and their power, I want to close by pointing out that there are actually two groups of people in our passage that fall under the influence of the demons. We focused the majority of our time on the men who lived among the tombs, And the result with them, when they met Jesus, was that they were set free. They were delivered. They were healed. They were restored. We know from the other Gospels, and again, it's not here, that these men asked to become his disciples and to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, go back to your town and share what great things God has done for you. And they do. And so, like many of Jesus' other miracles, We are left with great hope and reason to think that Jesus doesn't only heal these men from this demonic affliction, but that they are healed in an eternal and a spiritual sense. This is the great thing that God has done with those two pathetic men that were crazy and weird, the people that we tried to bind but could not. But they're not the only ones who are under the influence of demons. There's a less obvious but infinitely more tragic group of people in this story. At the end of the passage, we are told this, listen, the demons came out from the men and they went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away, they went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. Good news, good news, great news. Behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they said, please come and heal all of us. When they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. For many years, I thought that the pigs rushing into the waters was a direct desire of Jesus. I thought it was sort of his, 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 his like he has the last word. Uh, the demons wanted to leave the pig, uh, the, the men, and Jesus agreed to that. But ha ha! I drowned you in the water. See. Escaping to the pigs still didn't save you, but I realize that that is not actually what's going on here. Instead, the demons intentionally caused these pigs to be thrown down as a last act of spite against Jesus. If they can't defeat Jesus, at least they can try and cause others to join them in their rejection of him. And sadly, we see that after hearing what happened, the two men's lives that had been delivered and changed forever and the loss of the herd of pigs they implored Jesus to leave. If we just look back up at the demons and what they said, it's like they took the words right out of the demon's mouth. What do we have to do with you, son of God? That's that's basically what they're saying. Get out of here. Please leave. I think they know that Jesus is powerful because it doesn't say they drove him away. It says they implored him. They wrecked It's so tragic. They see his power and yet they have this love for these pigs that they valued the pigs over the power of Jesus, over the deliverance of these two men. So tragic. Listen, we're living in a physical world wrapped in spiritual realities. In our passage, we've seen both the nature of Satan's power and the power of God. We've seen two groups of people under the power of Satan, under his influence the two men that were cleansed, the two men that were healed, and on the other hand, the whole town who is left in their sin. This is the message of Jesus to the lost. To anyone that's afflicted, hurting, needy, hopeless, suffering, trapped, pathetic, in bondage, with, terrible, with a terrible history, Jesus offers new life. He offers freedom to those that are enslaved to sin. He offers hope to the hopeless. We talked a lot about hope when we were going through 1 Peter. He offers this great and living hope, this hope that does not fade, does not perish, extends into eternity. But here's the thing Jesus' power also, the same power that does all these wonderful things, does another wonderful thing, and it's this it heals you and delivers you from what is unclean. Like the pigs that ran off the cliff. Pigs were unclean to the Jews. He delivers you from uncleanness. The Bible says that if you confess your sin to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to what? To cleanse you from unrighteousness. He eradicates the parts of you that are unclean. In the end, the townspeople didn't want Jesus' cleansing. They were too distraught over what Jesus' salvation had cost them in the form of flocks to see the glory of souls that had been delivered, that lives had been saved. Uh, Please do not make that mistake. Please do not make the mistake of these townspeople and only see that which is physical and not see the great reality of the physical and spiritual cleansing That's the message to those that are lost. The message of Christ to those who have been healed is this. We're fighting a spiritual battle. And I charge you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I want to leave us with Paul from Romans. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it, it, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this promise. We are utterly aware of our weakness. We are utterly aware of our sinfulness before you. Father, help us to be good soldiers, men and women that stand on the truth of your word, that take it seriously, and that live reflecting it. Father, being magnified in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.